rhythm and musing story <coughs> recounted by a former security officer of Queen Elizabeth. They told about how she went for a walk one day near her Belmoral estate where she vac vacations every year. And as she was walking, she was wearing a headscarf and a tweed coat rather than the usual bright suit and hat that people usually see her in in public. And she encountered a group of tourists who asked if she lived in the area. To which she replied, she had a house nearby. And then they asked her, have you ever met the queen? And she said, no. And then pointed to her officer and said, but he has. All the same, they apparently left without realizing that they had just conversed with a monarch. They failed to recognize her because she didn't appear as they had expected. Today is Palm Sunday, the final Sunday of Lent, where the church prepares to recognize Jesus' work on the cross to atone for our sins and to celebrate his resurrection and the hope of eternal life on Easter Sunday. In our, in our passage today, which is taken from the lectionary plus a couple of verses, we see Jesus ride into Jerusalem and hailed as king by his followers. And it's clear enough that he's receiving the endorsement. But while his disciples are appropriately exalting him, not everyone recognizes the significance of what's happening or about to happen. Not even his followers fully grasp the entire scenario because he's not appearing as they might have expected. And that becomes increasingly apparent throughout the week. At the same time, even though he is extolled as king, when the episode is viewed in light of the larger story, it calls into question how we see Jesus. And it speaks to the importance of our perceptions of how we see him. Even if we acknowledge him as king, what kind of king do we see him to be? And our passage is a strong declaration of who Jesus is. He sends his disciples ahead to bring a colt. The other gospels specify it's a donkey, and he rides it into Jerusalem. Now, Jesus has been walking throughout the gospels. In the Gospel of Luke, he's been walking to Jerusalem. The story's been moving toward Jerusalem since about chapter 9. Why does he all of a sudden need a ride? He's making a point. He rides on a donkey, a donkey likely to make a claim about himself. Because Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is a reference that his followers appear to get. As they throw their cloaks on the donkey, on the, the road, and they extol him. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Other gospels record they are saying Hosanna, which is why we're singing it so much today. An exclamation that means save, but is used as an expression of praise. They are recognizing that Jesus is king. And rightly so. The story as a whole shows us that Jesus is king and that when we recognize 
Jesus. We recognize God's work. God is orchestrating events within and well beyond this episode, even providing the donkey for him to ride on. He was at work in that. He's at work in the miracles they are praising Jesus for. He's at work in the events in the week ahead. God is at work, and some recognize it in Jesus' kingship, and Jesus being king, and some fail to. When we recognize Jesus, we recognize God's work, but the flip side is that when we fail to, when we fail to recognize who Jesus is, we miss out on God's work. The Pharisees tell him to rebuke his disciples. Perhaps they disagreed with the sentiment of their exclamations, although they have yet to successfully refute any of his miracles or his teaching. But there's likely another concern as well. We're told elsewhere in the Gospels that the religious leaders are afraid of the following Jesus has because they're afraid of Roman retaliation. They might be saying, rebuke your disciples because the Romans might hear them. Jesus tells them, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Such is the work and the sovereignty of God. Jesus is going to be glorified. He's going to be recognized. It's up to us to join in it or to miss it. Are we going to miss out? Are we going to miss the monarch that's in front of us? Even if he doesn't appear as we might have expected. Unfortunately, everyone is missing a little something with Jesus in this passage. Two episodes illuminate considerations for our passage today. Just before this this episode, at the beginning of the chapter, is one of my favorite Jesus stories. A man named Zacchaeus, who we're told is a chief tax collector, who the audience may very well have, might as well have been told he was a chief sinner. He wanted to see Jesus, and so as Jesus is passing by, he runs ahead, climbs a tree because he's short, and so he can see over the crowd, and Jesus sees him and tells him that he's going to stay at his place, essentially invites himself over. And in that moment, people have a problem with that. Because he's a tax collector who works for the occupying Roman government. But at the same time, Zacchaeus is a model of repentance. And pledges half of his possessions to the poor and, for, and to pay back restitution to anyone he's cheated four times over. And Jesus makes the encouraging statement that salvation has come to this house. Today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost Right after that, he tells a parable, it says, because people thought the kingdom of God would appear at once. And so he tells the story of a noble who went to a distant country to be appointed king, as was custom in some of the cultures of the time. And as he did, he entrusted some of, a significant amount of money to three of his servants. And when he returns, two of the servants have increased his money, one simply put it away. Two who increased it are given position over cities because he has been appointed king. 
in proportion to the amount of increase, while the one who simply put it away has it taken away from him and given to the one with the most increase, while those who oppose the royal appointment are executed. Now, a couple of things are happening in these previous verses. Jesus is receiving one who is despised. And he tells a parable on faithfulness that is simultaneously correcting the notion of an immediate and a complete establishment of God's kingdom. In short, he's contrasting with expectations. He does it all the more after this episode when he clears the temple of those who are selling. We're told elsewhere, likely in the court of the Gentiles. And and so the economic practices were interfering with worship. And rather than accommodate it, Jesus corrects it in a way that people don't like. He's not the king people expect. And it becomes increasingly apparent as the story continues. People want a conquering king. They want one that will liberate them from the Romans, one who will conquer militarily, politically, immediately, in a way that they can see. They want the good old days of perhaps King David and King Solomon when they had far-reaching borders, strong military, material prosperity. Jesus offers something different, but something far greater. He comes to conquer sin and death and establish an eternal kingdom that no military and no political force can stand up against. The problem people have, or one of them anyways, is that his kingdom doesn't come fully and immediately. In fact, it's still advancing today as we wait for Jesus to bring it in its fullness when he returns. Another problem people often have is that his kingdom doesn't come through force or might or by the exercise or preservation of privilege. But rather it comes through suffering and sacrifice. And it often looks a lot like defeat in the world's eyes. It comes through sacrificial love, ultimately displayed on the cross toward which Jesus is moving and is executed upon at the end of the week. Jesus doesn't fit the picture of victory that a lot of people have. People of the time and the audience of the gospel are likely familiar with the the images of Roman kings and generals returning from battle with great pomp, parades, and chariots. And Jesus doesn't come like one of them. Not with chariots and horses, but on a donkey. He comes as a king who is also a suffering servant whose kingdom is not established fully and immediately, but advances through history, who achieves a victory that's not comfortable, that doesn't come through dominating one's military foes, but it comes through death, his own death. All through Lent, we've seen Jesus contrasting with expectations. 
and showing us the importance of sacrificial love for all who would follow him. That reality is not always easy to digest. A king who comes to crush one's enemies is far more desirable for many than one that tells us to love them. A king who might demarcate his subjects from the rejects of society is more comfortable than one who might gather them together. A king who establishes his reign immediately might be easier to perceive and serve than one whose kingdom advances throughout humanity and history. But if we fail to recognize who Jesus is, we will miss out on what God is doing. At the end of the passage, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because of the consequences of people's rejecting what will bring them peace, as he expresses it. Now, often when we think of peace, we think of serenity, a lack of turmoil, a lack of conflict. But God's peace is far more holistic. It's a making right of all things. It's a wholeness where everything is as it should be. In us and our lives, but also in our world. And because it is a setting right of things, it is neither an accommodation to the status quo, nor is it a violent dominion established over one's enemies. It is an establishment of God's kingdom through service and love. Jesus' lament effectively says that one day their enemies will lay siege to them and destroy them because they didn't recognize God's coming. They didn't see what God was doing. Many interpreters understandably recognize Jesus' words as referring to the future siege on Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which happened as the Roman Empire responded to a revolt that tried to expel them. And it failed. Eventually, the peace of ignoring Jesus to appease the Romans, as we see the Pharisees appeal to, as well as the peace of domination by force that the revolt of the zealots later tried to achieve, they both failed. One leads to the execution of the true king, Jesus. The other leads to a tragic defeat at the hands of an empire. Jesus is claiming Zechariah 9.9, but Zechariah 9.10 is also very important. It says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. We often forget Jesus' peace, the peace that comes from his reign. We seek alternatives when we seek peace without love. And we do that when we think of peace as our own serenity. Not holistically as God does. It's really easy to shake our heads at the characters in this story. Or maybe in history. But if we look, if we look around ourselves, we're not doing much better. We continue to seek peace in places that are temporary at best. 
oftentimes downright destructive. When we forget the peace that comes through sacrificial love, the peace that comes through Jesus, we may seek peace in all the wrong places. We might seek the peace of prosperity that comes at the expense of others. We might seek the peace of perceived tranquility that is conditional upon the death of our enemies, even if if others have to die with them. We might seek the peace that comes from silence in the face of evil, as long as it's perpetuated by people who are like us, or maybe people that we do business with. We might seek the peace that comes with a respectable facade, rather than facing and dealing with the brokenness within ourselves, or even in our churches. Peace without the love of Jesus, without the reign of Jesus, is not lasting peace. If we recognize who Jesus is, then we embrace the peace that is holistic, complete for ourselves and for our world. It's a peace that serves lovingly and sacrificially rather than seeking to dominate or exalt ourselves over others. It's a peace that can permeate this life and is the reality of the life to come. It's one that is permanent and not subject to circumstance. Despite people's expectations, Jesus rides into Jerusalem not to conquer the Romans, but to be executed by them on a cross, the most shameful death to the society. And yet in his death, accomplishes victory over death itself, providing us with eternal life with him, a true and lasting peace outweighing any circumstances in this world. It doesn't make sense. Not always, not to us anyway. But it accomplishes a more holistic and complete peace than anything else that we could accomplish on our own. It's a more holistic peace, a more complete one than either accommodating the status quo or self-serving domination over others. passage asks us, do we know King Jesus? Do we know what brings us peace for ourselves and for our world? Or do we seek it in something less than himself? All the same, there is hope. There's hope for us. Even if we find that our lens of Jesus or what Jesus does is distorted. If we find that he's clashing with our expectations, there's hope. These events, they set into motion the events of Holy Week, which end with Jesus' execution. Even his disciples didn't understand what was coming, though. They recognize Jesus as king, but their concept is very different than what plays out. It's why most of them ran after he was arrested. It's why one of them denied he even knew him. It's why they locked themselves away after he died. They weren't 
prepared for it, even after he told them it was coming. That's how much he clashed with their expectations. Of course, after he is raised from the dead, he, these things are illuminated. And he continues to explain it to them, why those things had to happen. As we'll see next week when we celebrate the resurrection, after Jesus is raised from the dead, he doesn't clean house and start over again. He meets them. He meets his disciples. He shows them that these things were going to happen all along. And then he sends them to be his witnesses. Even if our expectations clash with what God is doing. Jesus is not doing the things that we thought he would do. We can return to King Jesus, and he will meet us there. And he will continue to use us. Our king used his kingship to go to the cross and die so that we might live. And his rising from the dead assures us of the hope of eternal life beyond the problems of this world. A peace that is holistic and cannot be broken, even if it does involve suffering in this life. And so if we find ourselves troubled by the state of the world or of our lives, perhaps because of our own faults and brokenness, we have a king whose love is big enough to find us where we are and to meet us there if we would receive him and to teach us the peace that comes from knowing his rule in our lives. If we turn to King Jesus, we acknowledge him as king. If we recognize him as the king he is, even if it conflicts with where we are or what we expect or even what we desire, if we return to him, we won't miss out on the work of God. And we too can know what brings us true and lasting peace. The peace that comes from knowing the benevolent rule of King Jesus. Let's continue worshiping him.